Blog Talk Radio. This is our common ground, alternative activists, empowerment, talk radio, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Who are you? You don't know. Don't tell me Negro, that's nothing. What were you before the white man named you a Negro? And where were you? And what did you have? What was yours? What language did you speak then? It's just about what we didn't do. Amen. Then it speaks to us and the possibility for us as a future person. Because ultimately, our people's future resides on what we do outside of the White House. African descent fairly, America failed. She put them in chains. The government put them on slave quarters, put them on action block, auction blocks, put them in cotton fields, put them in inferior schools, put them in substandard housing, put them in scientific experience, experiments, put them in the lowest paying jobs, put them outside the equal protection of the law, kept them out of their racist bastions of higher education, and locked them into positions of hopelessness and helplessness. The government gives them the drugs, builds bigger prisons, passes a three-strike law, and then wants us to sing God Bless America? No, no, no. Not God Bless America. God... Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Our Common Ground, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Our Common Ground, a higher ground for discourse, discussion, solutions, and ideas. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Talk, talk, that matters. matters. Transforming truth truth to power. One One broadcast at a time. And now to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. And he's talking about the problem of color. Dr. Du Bois talked about it in 1903. Every black person that has been of significance to black people has tried to grapple with what was happening, what was causing us to be oppressed, and raising issues or raising discussion about it. So I tell people, why would they do it? And what I started thinking about was things that were said within the system. Number one, the system said that we, as people of color, were minorities. And the other emphasis that was even greater than the factor, the numerical factor, was that we were supposed to be genetically inferior to people who classified themselves as white. Indeed, and I say racism 
as a dynamic, racism as white supremacy, has been the reality that black people all over this planet have faced for the last 500 years. There's never been a moment, there's never been a minute, there's never been a day, there's never been a week where we have not been confronted with racism, white supremacy as a system. Never a half a minute. So I said, well... A new psychological study from the National Institute of Mental Health. Just this morning, along with a long-time psychiatrist. The circle of depression is growing wider, broader. 15% of women suffer from their disorder. Abnormalities in the neurotransmitters. Six million American kids take prescribed medications. But what if the criminal is mentally ill? The punishment, a form of aversion therapy. Everywhere you look, there it is. Think psychiatry has nothing to do with you? Think again. The whole Hitler was particularly impressed by American eugenicist Madison Grant. Grant's book, The Passing of the Great Race, was proclaimed by Hitler as his personal Bible. In his book, Mein Kampf, Hitler further hailed eugenics as the science that would rebuild the German nation. The German eugenicists welcomed the Nazi uh, advent to power because the Nazi program could fund the very programs that they had in mind. The Nazis gave them political support, financial support, and uh, conversely, the psychiatrists gave the Nazis a medical justification for uh, their uh, genocidal policies. Something like 40% of German psychiatrists had joined the SS by 1933. They weren't forced into the SS, they just joined it naturally because the, because the beliefs were very, very similar. Rudin and his work led directly to the decision to move from sterilization to murder. Harmful medications gross nearly $27 billion a year. On another front, they were continuing their assault on our most personal freedoms. Psychiatrists demand the absolute right to determine what is best for the so-called mentally ill. After all, the mentally ill are crazy and unable to evaluate their own treatment. To enforce their authority over others and keep their institutions filled at profitable levels, psychiatrists use a method called involuntary commitment. When you go to a real doctor, say a family doctor or a cardiologist, a patient always has the right to refuse treatment. So there is no such thing as involuntary treatment when it comes to clinical medicine as practiced by real doctors. Psychiatrists, of course, believe that people can be treated against their will.
they just invaded our home. They came in with officers. Our kids were scared. You know, they come in with pieces of paper and say, you're giving us your kids. And it's like, you know, how can they just come in and do that? She said, you could be arrested for medical neglect. And I said, but how was that when, you know, this is my child. And I, and I see that he doesn't need that much medication. Why would you threaten me with something? There was that much pain and, and sadness in so many people who didn't know what it was and that it helped that it was given a name. See mental illness as a stigma, as a flaw, as a character weakness. We are very faith-based people, so all you hear is, you t I take it to the Lord in prayer. I know that it was my God who led me to the right psychiatrist. So it was, I had to, after that kind of response, and I, and I know there are lots of books out there about mental health, but there were very, very few, if any, that really spoke uniquely to the black American experience. So that's why I had to do it. I am a black man living in a white man's world because historically we have never been respected. Post-traumatic slave syndrome, you will always be black. Our common ground, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Tonight at Our Common Ground, in conversation with Dr. Raymond Wimbush, talking racism and mental health therapies, and the movie, 12 Years a Slave. Transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. And now, Janice Graham. Good evening, everyone, and thank you for being with us here tonight at Our Common Ground. I'm Janice Graham, and I certainly hope and pray that you are all well and looking forward to a new day in America. Tonight at Our Common Ground, we are so pleased to have back with us Dr. Raymond A. Wimbush. We're going to be in conversation with him, Racism and Mental Health Therapies, in the first page. And in the second page, 12 Years a Slave. Dr. Raymond Wimbush is the director of the Institute for Urban Research at Morgan State University in Baltimore, Maryland. He is an African-American scholar, activist, lecturer in the field of developmental psychology of African boys and reparations for the transatlantic slave trade. He's the author of Belinda's Petition, a concise history of reparations for the transatlantic slave trade, published in 2009. It was a prequel to his book, Should America Pay?, Slavery and the Raging Debate on Reparations, which was published in 2003. And he is the author and the director of a program from the publication, The Warrior Method, a program for rearing healthy black boys, published in 2001. He's a clinical psychologist and director of the Warrior Institute, and he is engaged in research concerning 
adolescent development, education, health, black men and boys, and mental health strategies for the African-American community. And we are so pleased to have have with us again Dr. Raymond Wimbush. Thank you so much, Ray, for being with us tonight. Hey, BJ, glad to be here again. Well, we've got, I mean, it's been a while since you've been with us, but um, we regularly rely on um, information that you pass along and the projects that you're involved in. One of the things I didn't mention was the BRICS uh, project in, in Baltimore that you were part of the initiation of that project. How are your projects yeah. going? Warrior Method, well, and I, I know you've been doing a lot of traveling and lecturing on mental health. Well, they're all going well. Beyond the Bricks is something that we do occasionally. We're trying to take that to another level. Um, I'm very proud of the series that we're doing with called Little Brother. It's a series of films that uh, Nicole Franklin and others were filming black boys over the next 10 years for 15 minutes each year to look at how they develop. So I'm pretty glad. I just got back here from uh, Nevis and St. Kitts. The Ministry of Education asked us, uh, my colleague Dr. Jeff Minzy and I, to come there to do some work with black boys, even though that's a country that is predominantly black. So it's a lot of things. What I try to do is seed some things, sow some other things, and plant some other things. So it's at a variety of levels, but, you know, I'm very encouraged by the work that I'm doing. Well, we're certainly uh, hoping that people in, in our audience tonight, who, by the way, can join us in our active chat room at blogtalkradio.com backslash OCG, uh, will, if they have not, uh, look at uh, many, the many books that have been so important in in our community in helping us build a framework in which to uh, look at some of the answers. Right, you know, one of my concerns, which has been consistent uh, in the Obama era, is that we have become distracted from our own agenda. Um, one, in sitting by and thinking and expecting that our agenda is going to be attended to, but the other is thinking that a national, federal strategy is going to bring us answers. I am concerned that we need better answers. So I'm just real pleased to have this conversation with you tonight. Let's talk about mental health, racism, and mental health therapies. Um one of, I think, the most devastating thing that's going on in our country right now is that our children are witnessing their their counterparts falling at the hands of police, irate, and racist individuals. I mean, if you think about what has happened, and we haven't talked since the murder of Trayvon Martin, but when you think about what our children are witnessing and the uh, accompanying trauma, you have to think about 
and ask the question whether or not we have the kind of mental health strategies in place in our communities to help them cope and not be further traumatized. The other question is the overarching issue of racism and mental health. Let's get your views on that. Well, you know, one of the things that has really that I'm very concerned now is the lynching of our children. Um, and when I mean lynching, I'm including Trayvon Martin and Renisha in there. Uh, that We're seeing like a national trauma every time one of these murders of our children occur. Uh, what I hear from my people are things like, oh, my God, I can't take this anymore. When is it going to stop? I feel terrible. There's kind of like this generalized depression that spreads mm-hmm. through our community because when a community experiences the killing of its children, uh, it's, it's probably the greatest trauma. You know, and, it, and it, this is not something that is, you know, just started happening. I can go back 30 years to the Atlanta child murders, and I can go back even further when we talk about 12 Years a Slave, a line that was very impactful in there. So the murdering of our children now, to me, is more overt. And the accompanying grief that is national, that is very personal, the verdict that George Zimmerman received in July, this stuff is affecting us very, very personally. And I'm, I'm talking to people, men and women, who are experiencing grief about these national lynchings mm-hmm. of our children. And so that's a concern that I have. It's a public health issue um, among us. And I think that we should call it that and we should treat it as such. And it's linked to the violence that occurs in our community. Well, one of the things I, 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 I that you have um stimulated in my own thinking is that we can go even further and think about what is happening to our children in our schools. There are lynchings, if we want to use that term to frame this, there are lynchings going on in our schools. Yes. (laughs) That we are now faced with a privatized educational system, whether it is paid for by public funds and taxes or not, uh, that there are curriculums that are absent of black history, African history, curriculums and disciplinary protocol, killing the spirit of learning and education for our children and our and parents are feeling impotent in that system and it's all coming out of uh the institutionalization of white supremacy by, via our tax dollars because you're no, also no, talking I... about police killings you're talking about courts that are meeting out injustice and framing it as legal. No, I, I agree with you 100%, uh, BJ. W- what we've seen over the past 30 years is the militarization of two institutions in our society that heretofore were not militarized. The first one 
is the police force of the United States, that it has become military. Your own city of Boston, you know, last spring experienced a, a lockdown that I have never seen in America. In fact, they've called it the largest lockdown I, in America. I, I, ima- I imagine that most people who are listening, I, I, when you wake up in the morning and you turn on your radio and your and, and the people on the radio says that the government says you must stay in your house. That's, That's right. lockdown. Well, it, exactly. So the militarization of police forces, I mean, if you look at military uh I mean, police forces now, they, they're no longer the officer-friendly that we had 30, 40 years ago, you know, twirling a nightstick as he walked through the neighborhood. They are in half-track vehicles. They are in full-body armor. They have automatic weapons, and they shoot and kill first and ask questions later. So we, that's why we're seeing a lot of these killings by police. It used to be that you would, you know, as I heard Bill Maher say last night on the side of police is that we uh, serve and protect. And now what it is is that we're serving and protecting, they're serving and protecting themselves rather than mm-hmm. the citizens. And then the second, you know, institution that we've seen militarized are the school systems. Uh, you're seeing right now uh, police, I mean, well, teachers, instead of referring children to uh, the principal or the assistant principal, they're calling the cops on them. I had uh-huh. a mother just this past week call me because her child was playing uh, dodgeball, and accidentally, he's the only black child in his class, but accidentally hit uh, a child on the head with a ball. And instead of, I mean, this is dodgeball. The mother wanted to press charges for assault, and this kid was five years old. You know, so, I mean, when I played dodgeball, you were expected to be assaulted by a ball. That was the rules of the game. So what we're seeing now is that teachers are now turning towards police and law enforcement to discipline kids, and schools are increasingly resembling prisons. So those two institutions have changed dramatically, and both of them have an effect on Africans in America. And, and what is what has been, you know, uh, through um, uh, Dr. Francis Cresswell-Singh, Dr. Joy Degree, your work, work of other people who are involved in the mental health and clinical psychology community have been talking about the trauma of racism and how white supremacy operates to harm black people on top of uh, post-slave traumatic uh, syndrome, uh, how is the mental health community responding to this? And and we have to keep in mind, and I know this, that we have to keep in mind that it is also an institution which is driven by the principles of white supremacy and controlled by mostly white people. Well, you know, I always say I'm, I'm a psychologist, and I'm in a field that has historically been very, very conservative. I mean, this is the field of the father of American psychiatry, Benjamin Rush, you know, well over 100 years ago, uh, made incredibly racist comments on the very first book published about mental health treatment 
in the United States, specifically about black people. They had diseases called uh, drapetomania, which meant, the, you know, the tendency for enslaved Africans to run away from the plantation. That was considered a mental disorder. Uh, Benjamin Rush also thought that African Americans could take greater pain than white people, so therefore it was a justification from working us from can't see to can't see. Uh, more recently, in an absolutely brilliant book that I recommend everybody uh, read is by Jonathan Metzl. It's called The Protest Psychosis, How Schizophrenia Became a Black Disease. Uh, after the revolution, black revolution of the 1960s, increasingly you saw black males going to psychiatrists and psychologists saying that uh, they were being followed by the police, that their children were being unduly targeted in school systems, that they were being arrested, which we now call stop and frisk. And you see a, a concomitant increase in the number of black men particularly who are diagnosed as being schizophrenia. So now when you go to mental hospitals, you know, almost every or the, the vast majority of those patients that have been diagnosed with schizophrenia are black. They, I mean, they're disproportionately represented in the mental health population. So the diagnosis of schizophrenia became political. It's not just a psychological disease now, it's political. And I think that we as psychologists, black psychologists, and I'm proud to be, you know, a part of, like, organizations like Association of Black Psychologists that produce people like Naeem Akbar and Wade Nobles and Thomas Parham, because a lot of people say that psychologists and psychiatrists like Dr. Francis uh, Chris Welsing have been on the cutting edge of making our people aware of how psychiatry and psychology can, is, is, as you say, of an outgrowth of a white supremacy health system and specifically in the area of mental health. Well, one of the concerns um, that we see but we don't hear, I mean, if you go back to the, the Dorma case, if you go back to the Navy Yard killing, if you go back yeah. and, and look over very recent news reports about what is happening in regard to mental health uh, care for African-American people. If you look at the suicide rate, which the Center for Disease Control from 1980 to 2012, uh, black males doubled, became yes. the third leading cause of death for black men between the ages of 15 and 24. So suicide, depression, and other mental illnesses are really real in our community. But one of the things that I think that we face, and I want you to talk about this, is the whole idea of the the kind of attitudes we have about seeking mental health um, uh, professionals. The other is the notion of, especially for children, of over-drugging them and using pills and um, and the other issue being the absence of an Afrocentric approach to mental health care. Well, that's a lot. But what, see, what we're doing diagnostically and legally, we're seeing the killing of people with mental disorders. For example, you 
mentioned the shooting in the Washington Navy Yard, but also remember just a few weeks prior to that, the young lady that was killed by police, unarmed and shot, with her child in the car also occurring in Washington, D.C. That's right. Both, both of these individuals had history, and, and I'm just naming two. We, I, we know of um, people who have um, uh, learning disabilities that have been shot. We know people who have been schizophrenic who have been shot. So we're killing, just like we did 150 years ago, uh, people who have true behavioral problems. And I don't think that there's an interest, frankly, in the police departments of the United States. If somebody, I think that both of those individuals, the guy in the Navy Yard as well as the other, the sister, I think both of them should be alive today. Did they kill someone? Absolutely. But we also know that people are guilty by reason of insanity, which doesn't seem to work if somebody does something publicly. You know, that's number one. And then, and then number two, what you said, there is a working, uh, in, you know, that's making this even more complex and problematic is that there has historically been a reluctance of Africans in America to go for mental health treatment. We still see it as something that's spooky, that's a sign of weakness, that's a sign of that you're, quote, crazy, unquote. And that's something that we've got to work on. I've tried to do it all of my life to try to, you know, particularly among black males because brothers don't go to therapy. You don't hear brothers saying, hey, look, I'm going to go see my psychiatrist in a few minutes. We just don't do that. So I think mm-hmm. that one of the burdens that, you know, my colleagues in the area of psychology and psychiatry have always had is to try to make sure that we get proper mental health treatment particularly in the area of depression um, and, and sort of called bipolar. I had a personal uh, encounter within my very personal relationship with a person who was clearly bipolar and uh, did not seek treatment for it, and it had, you know, catastrophic results. Well, w- one of the things, and, and I really thank her, my good friend uh, and an Our Common Ground voice, Terry Williams, in her book, Black pain, it just looks like we're not hurting, uh, has done is to try to help us and navigate us through the whole notion of um, breaking down some of those barriers. But then you still have that argument, Ray, that um, our children, I mean, uh, one point I want to make, in the city of Boston, there are only three psychiatrists who identify themselves as specializing in African American trauma. Is that only right? three. I didn't know that. three? Only three. Only three. Wow. You know, it, it, it's it's really interesting, and I had a uh, a conversation with one of them uh, a couple of months ago about why that is. So. That's one of the problems. Um, And the other problem has to do with this whole um, insurance insurance coverage thing, you know, where there are so many black people who do not have the kind of health insurance that would cover therapy. The other is 
the notion that the psychiatric community is pushing pills on people to fix their pain. And the kind of pain that black people are in, I don't think pills, you know, I'm I'm wondering, I, I was talking to a colleague who's just having a lot of trauma around racism in her work environment. And one of the things I would like to have set, have done for her is to refer her to a group of African Americans who meet with a, a clinical psychologist or a trained mental health person who can talk about those things. We did the radio series, Working While Black, and right. we've got to have, I mean, I get back to the bottom line, Ray, and you know that I am very solutions-oriented. We've got to have better answers. Well, we do. I mean, there is no doubt in, our, you know, in my life and others' lives that we have to have better answers. I think we also have to be careful that, as you said right then, that, We've got to look at the complicity of psychiatry in not only misdiagnosing our children and our, our adults, but also over medication. Uh, one of the things I was very tired of hearing about for the past 20 years was people would come to me, black children would come to me to bring their parents, and they would say, Dr. Winbridge, my son is ADHD, you know, and I would say, what do you mean they're ADHD? Well, you know, they're hyperactive disorder, attention deficit disorder, whatever. Well, the guy that coined that phrase, that actually got it into the uh, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, which is kind of like the Bible of psychiatry and psychology, was a guy named Leon Eisenberg. And when he died in 2009, on his deathbed, I mean, literally a couple of weeks before he died, He said that ADHD, and this is an exact quote, is a fictitious disease. He made it up. And the reason why he made it up was to sell Ritalin. Uh, It was like a a co-conspiracy, if you want to say, between him Mm -hmm. and Cyber, or what is it, G Guy, I think it's called, the pharmaceutical company, to create a disease, diagnose children, and then prescribe medicine in order to sell drugs. And uh-huh. so we, we were trying to get at that in our opening yeah. clip. Um, oh, yeah, because... I heard it. And you were very right on. That the drugs, black boys particularly, are over-prescribed Ritalin. And Jawanza Kanjufu, uh, who has done the black educator, he said something that I and I can't dispute what he is saying. He said the early, the the giving of our you know of of uh, Ritalin to young black boys led to the '80s epidemic of cocaine abuse because Ritalin is a stimulant just like cocaine is, and he said that it it was a deliberate attempt to you know addict black males to cocaine crack and so forth in the 80s, which they had been receiving in milder doses as Ritalin in the 70s and the 80s. So, you know, this is, you know, psychiatry is not innocent in all of this. And this is why black psychologists, we try to get our own nomenclature. We try to get our own 
classification of disorders. We don't treat our clients the same way as white folks treat theirs. We just don't. Well, I'm hoping that, you know, I mean, Jawanza Kanjufu, uh, the first time he was on this program was uh, in, in 1986. Mm-hmm. And 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 that was when he published his book Countering the Conspiracy to Destroy Black Boys, which yeah. I recommend to all of our listeners to read. Um and and it just seems that we're not getting the information out to people who need it. Yeah, how, how yeah, how we can do that is um i mean i've been doing it for um 28 years uh but you know we're not doing a very good job of it well you you know bj it's 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 a real see and this is why i always call it the system of white supremacy you know a couple of weeks ago i was on Nevis and st kitts as i mentioned earlier there is not one Black psychologists on those two islands in the Caribbean. Not one. You were talking about three black psychiatrists in Boston. There are whole black nations without psychologists and psychiatrists that are African centered. That's why we were called down there that not to set up a system. I mean, they were telling us, why don't you come down here and stay? And as you know, Randall Robinson lives down there right yeah. now. He's not a psychiatrist, but he lives there. And so we have whole areas. You know, I'm I almost shudder when I hear somebody say that a black child is going to a white psychiatrist or psychologist for diagnosis. But there's not enough of them, and the system of white mm-hmm. supremacy discourages black boys from graduating from high school, uh, discourages black girls the same way, denies them entrance in college for the most trivial offenses because you know you can't get a student loan if you have some kind of record. And so we're not producing at the graduate level enough psychiatrists, black psychiatrists and psychologists to matter. When I got my degree in psychology in the 70s, there were in in this entire United States only 600 black PhDs in psychology. That's roughly, I mean, that's roughly 50 per, let me do my math correct, Um, that's about 12 per state. 12 per state. And, I mean, so you don't have a lot of black. So let's say that number has tripled. That's only 30 black psychologists per state. I'd have to actually see the number. But we don't have that many black psychiatrists and black psychologists in the United States. All of their practices are full. I live right next door practically to Francis Cress Wellesley. And Patricia Newton, two great psychiatrists here in the Baltimore uh-huh, who's been Both of them have been on this program many times. Right, and, and their practices are full. They just can't see any more people. They have too many people. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so we could triple the number of mental health workers right now and still be way short of what we actually need. Well, you know, it's really interesting that you say that, um, uh, Dr. Wimbush, because just this morning I had a conversation with a long-term friend who is a internal medicine doctor here in Boston. And she runs a program where she has organized a nonprofit where she has organized women 
physicians all over Boston, and mm. all week there are teams going out treating homeless women who live on the street. And I was talking with her, uh, trying to get to some better answers. Why we? Because I'm on the board of her foundation, and 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 I was talking to her about why we couldn't do this for black women in the black community who are suffering from, and many of them are single mothers. Many mm-hmm. of them are. Victims of intimate partner and domestic violence. Violence, right. Many of them are struggling with sexual identity. And why we couldn't have teams of social service, social worker, psychologists, psychiatrists going out, finding them, because that's what they do. They find these homeless women under the bridges, um, Sleeping in alleys and behind buildings and, and 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 I mean, why aren't we doing these things? Well, you, you got to help me out. Hard, you, you know, most of these funding sources, and we got to quit depending on them. If I go DJ and say I want to get some money for, uh, I don't know, investigating teenage pregnancy, we fund that. If I say that, uh, go to NIH and say I want money for drug abuse among teenagers, we'll fund that. Uh, or, I don't know, I don't know, violence among young black men in Chicago, we'll get money for that. But if you say you're going to go and get funding for white supremacy, the study to end it, they'll tell you we don't fund that. I, I've actually said and proposed in a meeting less than a year ago among black mental health work, workers, we see right now, Vans going out with dental people to treat, you know, uh, yes. the, mm-hmm. the dental problems among black folks, medical problems in rural areas. I think we need a mental health bus that goes and and just simply, as you say, go out into the street. A vast majority of people that are homeless have mental disorders, and that people could come on that bus in little cubicles with mental health workers, social workers, and said, look, we'll let you talk to us for a half hour for nothing and let us, you know, then tell you where to go, what to do, whatever. We actually need to be out in the community like this. I have this thing, you know, you've read it on my pages. I do what I call community counseling. I would just go out sometimes by myself in an area that I know maybe some people designate as being dangerous, in the black community, and I've talked to people who I know have mental problems and just try to make a referral. I mean, it's a tiny drop in the ocean, but I think we need to have something, and I agree with you, more systematic and more formal. Yeah, I, 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 I mean, there are, there are so many things, and that was what I was referring to earlier, that we're looking for answers on a national level rather than looking at answers on a local level because everything political is local and everything for us is local. You know, I, I just, um, I think that we have, we need to, you know, and I talked to Dr. Patricia Newton about it. I've talked to Hunter Adams about it. Yeah. Uh, and, 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 and maybe we need to have a national confab 
on mental health, which would include some of the funding um, people in the uh, National Institute for Health around what we must do at the local level to address these issues. Because if we don't do that, we just continue to be traumatized, and one trauma is on top of another trauma, and it just piles on. I mean, even people like you and me, uh, the need to be able to talk to other people, I think sometimes I use our common ground as my own therapy, to talk to other people to vent about what we are seeing in our country. And as we talked earlier, uh, our, our parents and our ancestors ought to be appalled at the retrogression of black empowerment in this country. My parents well, would be just besides themselves to see well, I, I, what... Well, you're absolutely correct. And one of the things, and I, I posted something today on Mount Bayou, one of the greatest black settlements in this country. One of the things that I am disappointed in, you know, is how we built dozens and dozens of HBCUs uh, in a variety of ways, both and not just with the government and public, but privately as well. We we had there's there's only two black boarding schools left in the United States of America. I can name them: Pine Forge Academy in Pennsylvania, and um, with the with the one down in Mississippi, uh, uh, Pineywood down in Piney Mississippi. Mm-hmm. There's the only two left, and. We built boarding schools during segregation, HBCUs during uh, uh, whole towns like Mount Bayou. We don't see people right now. We, we've got a couple of examples of independent, like Olatunji Village down in South Carolina. But in general, we don't have those that independence that we used to say or, or to have and act upon because it was in a period of segregation. We tend to start, you know, and I see young people not manifesting that, and it seems like it's dwindled, mm-hmm. you know, throughout the past 30 years that, that what I call black independent institutions that were, that owe nobody anything in terms of white folks helping our people. I mean, you got to realize that the Urban League came out of a period when black folks were making doing the great migration, that Garvey's movement was all black, Nation of Islam, all black, Mount Bayou, all black efforts. We're not seeing, and I'm, I'm not saying we don't see any of it, but we don't see as much of it. And but at the same time, and this troubles me greatly, we see the wealthiest blacks who have ever lived on this planet right now, and I could talk about hip hop stars and entertainers. And that money is not coming back into our communities the way it should. Mhm, mhm, mhm. Right. I want to get your, um, I want to get your your take on on a clip that I have. But before that, I, I do want to underscore what you have just said. And 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 am I am I right when I think and begin to conclude that? We are not um, keepers of our own community. 
we, 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 you know, DJ, what we do, our culture is easily given away. We've given away the blues. We've given away jazz. I, I, don't, I never listen to a station that says we play smooth jazz. There's no such thing. And, mm-hmm. and, and I, culturally, and, and then to be sure, and I don't want to blame, it's also stolen from us. There's a major struggle going on right now among the Gullah people to preserve yes. Capitol Island. Uh, you may want to have, what's her name, Tina McElroy-Answer on there. Because uh-huh. she is she is struggling mightily to preserve what I call, and I've been to Sapelo, the last pure Gullah Island in that whole chain in the Sea mm-hmm, Island. Mm-hmm. And it's so being done, think, and it's being done done by government. It is. It's being done by mm-hmm. government, and we're not. We're seeing so right before our very eyes, we're seeing an erosion of our institutions. HBCUs are under major attack right now. Because mm-hmm. th- these institutions were not supposed to, you know, achieve. I'm at. I'm teaching right now at the institution Morgan State that we turn out more black engineers than any institution, black or white, in the United States. Under attack, we're seeing Howard. Look at what recommendation for Howard. Your guy up there, Steve. I mean, Henry Louis Gates president or Condoleezza Rice. What is going on? And I think mm-hmm, that we're mm-hmm. not only losing our institutions, we're giving them away, and they're also being taken from us. Mm-hmm. And and I noted today in the news that um, uh, the the one of the biggest um, inter HBCU football uh, championships has been canceled. Really? Because of funding. But we live in an era where we have our first African-American president, and you wonder who's looking over us and whether or not we have to come to the reality, speaking truth to power here, that we are our own keepers. Well, let's, let's be real, BJ. We Africans in America gave a collective Wait, we exhaled in 2008, and we shouldn't have. We exhaled in 2008. And and what has happened in the exhaling is that we really kind of said, well, and I have always said that Barack Obama's election is an achievement, but it's not a goal. You know, mm-hmm. it's an achievement. But we mm-hmm. we exhaled. We know, I know in the area of the reparations struggle, that we kind of, oh, wow, we got a black president. The schools are going to get better. Reparations are going to be realized. Um, <laughs> black, incarceration, black incarceration is going to decrease. None of this stuff happened. No. And it wasn't because we thought that a black president would save us or uh, that would rescue us. We actually thought we let go of the reins and handed uh-huh. it over to Barack Obama, and, and, and he couldn't hold all of them, and, and, mm-hmm. and, and he ain't been the perfect president. And we 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 are going to look upon these five years and say, what did we get out of it? And, I, I mean, I can name some accomplishments that he has had, 
but I can. I also think that we exhale too quickly. We should never exhale with the United States government, and we mm-hmm. did. And, and while we were exhaling, circling back to the issue of mental health, we are seeing more children, more yes. women struggling with depression, struggling That's with right. with uh, both legal and illegal drug problems. We're seeing our men struggling with anger and rage. And we're seeing our vets worn to the dust. That's That's where we are. Because, as you say, we exhale. But more important than that, I want people to really understand, we are at a crossroads. I want you to listen to this report, Ray, and get your your um, your take on it. And for those of you who are listening, this is where we have come because we have not attended to the spiritual or mental health of our community. We have not empowered our children, and we have neglected our traditions in our community. Teenagers are under arrest, accused of beating a homeless man in Hoboken to his death. And police believe the teens were playing a sick game. Knockout is a game that a lot of our teenagers play, uh, just where they dare one of the guys to just randomly choose anybody walking down the street. Investigators say the teens, all from Jersey City, seen here on surveillance video shortly after the assault, were allegedly playing knockout. Oh, damn! My man got slammed! James, the one-hitter quitter! It's called a one-hitter quitter. You try to hit with one swing and knock him completely out. What is knockout? The game knockout is like when people born it, like, they uh, try to see where their hands goes at, and whoever comes walking down the block in front, they just knock them out. You just knock them out, you hit them with a blow, you check their belongings. Knockout is like when you just punch somebody and they knock, like they go to sleep when you hit them. What you are about to see is a violent, deliberate, startling attack. Watch. Lying with his face on the curb on Tito Way is 50-year-old Kappa teacher James Adelsberger. Walking away from the attack, seeming to joke and celebrate, are five teenagers. What's the point? Like, to, for the fun of it, like for little kids to run around, hit people, and knock them out. Even though they shouldn't be doing it, but people do it. You can see the teacher was walking, briefcase in hand, and with no fear as he moves toward the group of boys. Watch as one of them crosses in front of the others and violently attacks Adelsberger. He falls to the ground, slamming his head on the curb, unable to even use his hands to catch his fall. And they hit them. Why? They think it's funny. They think it's funny, like... They think it's amusing. That's what they say. It's just more like um, picking a target that is alone, defenseless. They just go, boom, when it's the right time and the right place. It's not anger. It's... No. No. It's just something people born like. It's just something like... You you just can't be around the wrong crowd, because the wrong crowd, they'll gas them up the door. They just want to see if you got enough strength to knock somebody out. It could be anybody. It could be a, a... a mother with her children, it could be um, a guy. I know one time they got the UPS guy. Well, what's the point? I mean, really, is it, a, is it just a macho thing of kids? It's a macho thing. Rangers are under arrest. That's where, that is the new, the new thing in Jersey City. 
Well, let me let me make a slight correction. I'm beginning to get email that this is something that has been going on for a number of years, but it's now found its way into mainstream media and is being reported. Um, it clearly is in Jersey City, but I talked to someone today in Baltimore where this is occurring. And as as media, and, and they said it has been aided and abetted with social media such as Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook. So what, I don't agree with the person that it is just a macho thing. I think it shows a deep level of depersonalization. And I know I'm sounding like a psychologist now, but that you simply don't connect with other people. Like when I listen to those young people in the tape, they're talking about, oh, it's just something that you do. It's fun. It's, it's funny. A, there's, no, yeah. there's no regard and connection to the person who is the victim of this sick game, none whatsoever. And that is why I think that we see an increase in murders in our community and, and, and so forth, because increasingly young Africans in this country are disconnected almost totally right now from people being connected to them. What's the Zulu declaration? I am because we are, because we are, I am. That we don't see that connection, that we're part of a group. We just don't see it. Well, I I have to agree with you that it is definitely a disconnection. And we, in the mental health community, uh, in the psychiatric community, there isn't a lot of investigation or, I suppose, treatment about young people who are so angry that they do disassociate and they do disconnect. I agree with you, and this shows the weakness of traditional psychiatry in all of its forms that we as black people cannot rely on the systems of psychiatry and psychology to treat us. We can use some of their information, but to rely on it, like you just said, there's nothing in DSM-IV that would describe that behavior. You could call it a, you know, operational defiance and all of this stuff like this, you know, uh, you know, but it's not really descriptive of what we're seeing happening mm-hmm. among mm-hmm. our youth. The, the west side of Chicago right now is what I would call, in political terms, a failed state. That that it's a nation with or, or a place within the African community where it's, you know, what is sociologists call anomic. There's no laws governing. Do I blame our people for that? No, I blame the system of white supremacy, but I think that we have to educate our children about how white supremacy twists their minds. And while we're trying to educate them, we also have to be counterpoint to people like Jay-Z. And and, and I'm going to be honest with you, one of my colleagues, and and this is a criticism of the president. See, Barack Obama made a mistake when he took Jay-Z and Beyonce under his wing when he first did the brush off on the shoulder during his campaign in 2008, sending a meme out to black America that I'm hooked into Jay-Z. 
you you can't do that as president of the United States. You can't do that because you're you're setting up a role model that is destructive. Nicki Minaj, and I don't want to pick on all of these guys, but what we're seeing is that they are educating our youth to do some of this stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the top of the hour at Our Common Ground. It's 11 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and we're talking with Dr. Raymond Wimbush about mental health and racism in our community. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we'll continue our conversation. Our number is 347-838-9852, and we'll be taking your calls at some point in this conversation. Tuned into Our Common Ground, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. I'm Janice Grant, giving voice to the black truth of America. Our Common Ground, broadcasting brave, bold, and black. Each Saturday, 10 p.m. When injustice becomes law, resistance becomes duty. Matthew V. Johnson, Wednesdays, 10 p.m., where spirit matters. Hey. 
India Declare. Real, raw, and right now. Join India Declare. Real, raw, and right now. Fridays and Saturdays, 11 a.m. It's the I Declare Friday and Saturday brunch. If you want your news real and your talk raw and right now, it's Friday and Saturday. India Declare at the I Declare brunch. Real, raw, and right now, India is live. Friday and Saturday morning, 11 a.m. The I Declare show with India Declare. On Blog Talk Radio. India Declare. Real, raw, and right now. TruthWorks Network. TruthWorks Network is proud to present a new addition to our outstanding broadcast lineup. It's Blanche, 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 with an exclamation mark. Blanche, with an exclamation mark, is hosted by Blanche Williams, pioneering, experienced talker Blanche Williams, founder of Greatness by Design. Blanche Williams brings to TruthWorks Network ongoing dialogue, discussions, and guests to elevate you to perform at our highest and greatest potential. Blanche, an acclaimed pioneering radio show host, coach, and talker, uses her radio experience to transpose issues that matter outside the matrix. Blanche Williams puts an exclamation mark on what matters at TruthWorks Network, Mondays, 10 p.m., it's Blanche, Outside the Matrix. Premiering Monday, December 30th, Reasoned Resistance, 10 p.m. Blanche, Blanche, Blanche. Outside the Matrix. Outside the Matrix. At TruthWorks Network. Outside the Matrix. Outside the Matrix. Blanche, Blanche. I know the truth. I know enough. At any minute, any second now, so will the rest of planet Earth. So what I'm asking you is, what is your end game? This is our common ground. Broadcasting bold, brave, and black. Common Ground. Thank you for being with us tonight. If you'd like to join us in our chat room, it's blogtalkradio.com backslash OCG. Tonight at our Common Ground, we're in conversation with Dr. Raymond Wimbush, the director of the Institute for Urban Research at Morgan State University in Baltimore. He is a clinical psychologist and director of the Warrior Institute. He is the author of Belinda's Petition, Should America Pay?, and the Warrior Method. Ray, once again, thank you for joining us here at Our Common Ground. It's just so great to be able to have this uh, discussion. I even skipped my news my news report tonight. <laughs> <laughs> right, that's okay. But 
before we went to break, we were we were talking about where we are. And, you know, you and I have for many years had this conversation, uh, this discussion, this ongoing discussion about whether or not we are addressing this collective depression going on in our community. I mean, I, I walk around, I did a lot of work during this last election. So I was down, you know Dudley, I was down in Dudley, as they say in Boston, I was down Dudley, and um, uh, passing out flyers and talking to people about voting and, and that kind of stuff. And you look at the faces, and you see so much sorrow. You see so uh, much hurt, so much pain in the faces of, of black people as they go around their day you go to work and all the black people want to talk about is these people and 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 then you 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 listen to the stories of the children in your in your family about what's happening with them at school um um i i know that during the time that my mother prior to her death two years ago uh before I would be always be so pained at the sorrow she felt about what was happening to black people in the black church uh specifically and the neglect by of the black church to the social ills in our community um, we We saw you and I saw our friends go to Vietnam, come back yeah. hurt, just mangled, and now yeah. we have two three wards in 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 the last 10 15 years and our veterans are coming back and in addition to that trauma the trauma of war the trauma of being in the military which is a white supremacist institution they have to deal with joblessness and homelessness what can we ask our mental health community to be doing well, what, what we've got to do is, as I've said before, that it it is gloomy indeed, but at the same time, I think that we have to make ourselves committees of one to make sure that what mental health is, what the, the term mental health itself is not defined by white people, that we have to have Thank our you. own thing. And we used to do that. You know, all of us have some place within our family, the person that we used to say at the family reunion, old crazy Uncle Joe or mad Aunt Mary or something like that. And what we need to do right now is say, how do we gather around and help those people who have mental problems? Now, that doesn't mean that, that, doesn't mean that they're going to always, you know, Listen to us. There, there may be drug abuse, there may be alcoholism, there may be schizophrenia, bipolar disorders, and they will resist doing that. But we have to start doing. You know, white folks call it intervention, but you know, black folks been intervening with their relatives for years, and we've got to like kind of bring up some of those old ways of doing that. So we can't rely on the institutions to treat ourselves. We do have a cadre of black professionals, but we can't rely on that cadre by itself 
to deal with some of the mental issues that we have among our people. We can't do that. So, um, uh, you know, I think that we've got, you know, the only thing I do, like, I'm always encouraged, like, on Facebook, like, which is a way for me to reach out, that one way of me reaching out, that people will email me privately, inbox me, and say things to me like, Dr. Wimbers, just thank you for bringing this. It helped me to do that. That's my attempt to reach out. I mean, one of the attempts to reach out. I try to do it in a bunch of other ways, but that's one attempt. Because we we know that that study that uh, Dr. Donald Ford, uh, pub, you know, not published, but she drew attention to a couple of days ago, that we know that if we instill in black children a sense of who they are as a black person, that they grow up to be more healthy. Being black is good for your mental health. I mean, it literally is. If you see a group of people who are black and see that they emphasize parts of their culture, they celebrate their culture, they join cultural organizations, they understand who they are as being black, that is good for their mental health. This is why I think that even the definition of insanity has to include how far a black person is away from their cultural roots. So by my mm-hmm. definition, Clarence Thomas is insane. You know, and, and Ben and, Carson with him. And, and Ben Carson with him. They're educated. They're, they've mm-hmm. got position, but they're insane because they are very. They're so distant from their cultural roots that they're mm-hmm. they're just out of their black mind, as I always say. Mhm. Mhm. Well. So um, you know, we got to find support in what we do and everything. We really have to find support. Yeah, you know, we always call ourselves Alternative Activist Empowerment Radio with Solutions. Let me suggest something to those of you who are listening. If you are an elder, find a group of young men and women that you have lunch with or a late supper Invite them to your homes and sit down and talk to them about their parenting problems, parenting stresses, parenting strategies, working with the, the, the children's schools, working with the, loving their husbands more and better, loving their wives more and better. You have the wisdom, and our ancestors are not pleased, Ray, when we don't pass on the wisdom. Well, they're not, and 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 one of the things that we got to do is to do that. I'm I'm just really I don't know what to do. I mean, I'm not an anthropologist, but I'm amazed when I talk to groups of little little Africans, you know, boys and girls, that they don't know. I said, do you ever play a game of marbles? And he said, well, what does marbles have to do with wisdom? We're not passing on the traditional games that mm-hmm. we used to have with our culture. Right, and, and, you know, I'm reminded of August Wilson's play, the first of those cycle plays, Jim of the Ocean, where Aunt Esther says in there, uh, we've got to, I've got to carry the culture. Somebody's got to carry it. It gets heavy yeah. sometimes, but somebody's got to carry it. We have to be cultural carriers. You know, again, I think it's reflected in the work I do part-time, of course, on Facebook, but 
trying to give our culture to make sure our children know who, you know, the Aunt Jemima was a real person. And it wasn't, mm-hmm. you know, and he said, well, what does that have to do with mental health? When you connect with your culture, you are less susceptible to mental health. Absolutely. I mean, one of the things that restores us are scenes like in the movie Beloved, the B. Richard right. character, um, oh Shug, where she does her her thing in the woods, calling the children and the men and the women uh, to dance and to smile. And she says, children, laugh for That's your mother. That's right. I beat Love. through that whole thing. I have to be that, that, I'm, I'm ready to be taken scene. away. That's the only scene in any film. Every time I look at that scene, I cry. She says, love your hand. Love yes. your feet. Love your stomach. Dance. And we, yes. we, we, we look at our hands and we don't love them. Black people look at their face. They look at their hair. They look at their lips and their nose and their ears, and they don't love them. And what, what B. Richards is saying in that incredible scene is that we've got to love each of those body parts because, as she also says, they don't love us. They had our hands to work for them. They had our backs to beat. We've got to embrace ourselves and love ourselves. Frances Cress Welding, every, every time uh, she makes a presentation, she said, I want everybody here to just hug themselves because yes. we don't love ourselves deeply. We should be madly in love with ourselves. Okay. That doesn't mean that we're selfish. It means that we have to love the part of us that is African. And many of us don't even know the part of us that is African. And we've got mm-hmm. to love that. Yeah, you know, I was, I was with um, my my first grandson is growing up, and he's getting so big, he's like six two at age twelve. But oh my um, God. I was teaching him how to hug a couple of weeks ago, and I said uh, to him, "Embrace me, breathe me in, so when I am gone, you will remember all that I have given you." Right. And 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 he was stiff. I mean, you know, boys at that age they get kind of strange. I said, "It's okay. My breasts are okay. They won't hurt you." <laughs> right, right, you know, right, and, right. And we and 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 I wanted and I think that we need to learn to touch each other because and we, we don't have gotten do that. yes, we have gotten into so many. Uh, European American ways of doing things and being that we forget that we have brought a spirit forward that is unique and powerful. Well, you know? it, it is indeed, and 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 what really you know makes me you know we if if I could wave a magic wand over Black America, I would tell. You know, every day read something about Africa. It just mm-hmm. every day, twenty minutes. Mm-hmm. Read Jet Magazine. Read something, and just and then embrace it, love it. Like you said, told your grandson to hug it. We celebrate the Fourth of July. We're getting ready to celebrate Thanksgiving. We celebrate Christmas. But you know, if after Christmas, it would be wonderful if all of African America would just say. We're going to celebrate Kwanzaa together. Yeah. 
We're going to look yeah. at Dr. King's birthday as not only a day off, but a day of reflection and, and celebrate our heroes and sheroes that, as I always try to do, is go throughout the whole year. There's somebody that we can celebrate or something that we can celebrate every year. See, white folks do it all the time. They got their St. Patrick's Day and they get drunk. They got the 4th of July and they read, they wave the red, white, and blue. They, mm-hmm. White people are all, they got monuments in Washington and Boston and New York and Chicago. White people celebrate themselves on an hourly basis, and we don't celebrate ourselves enough. We, we, and that's why we feel disconnected. That's why we can have those games like we were talking about earlier, knockout, because we don't see ourselves in any of this stuff. Around yes. us, we don't. Yes. I, yeah. I tell black families when I walk into your house, I want to know that I'm in a home that is occupied by black people. I mean, mm-hmm. how can we hang pictures of white folks on our, you know, walls? We see them every day at work. Our home should reflect a warmth and a coziness that surrounds us with Africa. Well, you know, that is one of the reasons that I think that the Kwanzaa season is so important. And for for those of you who are are regulars, every year we do a Kwanzaa teach-in. Our Kwanzaa teach-in is going to be early in the month this year. It's going to be on December 21st so that you can prepare for the season. Because I think we do have to bring meaning uh, to our lives. A baby was born in our neighborhood right across the street uh, last Saturday. And when that baby was brought home from, uh, it's a Greek family, and they're so proud of their Greek uh, heritage, and they have rituals. And torches were placed in the yard waiting for the baby to come home. Right, And they could tell you exactly what that baby's name meant in in Greek. And I think that we have to embrace everything that we have to embrace ourselves in that same way. We have brought forth so many rich uh, particles of spirit of where we came from, and I I agree. I absolutely agree. Ray, we're going to take some phone calls. If you're just joining us, we're in conversation with Dr. Raymond Wimbush. She is the director of the Institute for Urban Research at Morgan State University in Baltimore, and he is a clinical psychologist. And tonight we're in conversation talking with health, uh, mental health uh, issues in the African-American community and racism and we're going to take a call, and after this call, we're going to move on into a discussion of the movie, 12 Years a Slave. 111, you're on the air. I respect you. Thank you for your call. You're on the air with Dr. Raymond Winbush. Greetings to you, Janice, and greetings to Dr. Winbush. Sarah, good to hear from you. Yes, you too, um, Janice. It's been a while, but I've been on. Um catching up with the archives, and it's it's indeed a pleasure to be able to speak with you because I was going to touch on that since you were talking about the 12 years of slave, but I'll leave that since you all haven't opened up that topic. But the topic dealing with mental health and what Dr. Winbush and yourself were speaking of with our children and this, we um, having this self-love for ourselves, I, I blame a lot of it on us, Janice, because we, we dropped the ball 
Because how can our children love themselves when we are sending them into an environment to be taught by people who demonize them, don't look anything like them? The majority of the teachers in these, um, the public school system, they are white women that are teaching them. We already know our history in dealing with white people in this country, and it's a very negative um, history. So we are the only group of people who know the same people who brutalized us and, and treated us like animals. Now we have turned over our children to them and demanding that they teach them, that, they, that they're supposed to teach them something. It is, it, it's an impossibility. That's why these children, they come out with this self-hatred, they don't really like themselves because of people that don't look like you, don't respect you, don't like you, they have nothing to give to you. And that is what we are doing with our children, especially the male children. I see it all the time with these, with these male children who come who have this, this, this spirit of defeat on them. By the time they get to the age of 12, they have this, this defeat hanging on them because the majority of the teachers in their public school system are white women. I've dealt with it because I have two sons, and I know that um, if you're not up on it and you don't keep up with it, your children, they're going to fall through the cracks. And, Janice, it's a good thing that you're up there with your two, your two grandsons, and you're, you're putting in that effort. But a lot of us, out, a lot of people out here, they're not doing it. They just send the children off to school. Oh, they're supposed to teach them. No, they're not going to teach them because all they're there for is to get a paycheck. That's all these people are there for is to collect a paycheck, nothing else. They could care less about these children. Let's get a response, and and, and, and thank you, Sarah. You're absolutely right. And on the Q-tip, everybody in my family is keeping me from going up to Miles' school and having a come-to-Jesus meeting with everybody. <laughs> right? Right. Well, you know, what, what I told See, I think it's unrealistic for us to say that all children, all black children are going to be in an African-centered school. That's that's what I would love to have. But the fact of the matter is that 91% of our children are in public school in the United States, and only 9% of them are in what is called private schools. And even all those private schools are not African-centered. What I told black parents they need to do is to be as heavily involved with the school as possible. So you, you know, and it's not that all white people are, but white people will come up to the school a hundred times a year to make sure their kid is being there. We PTO meetings, PTA meetings that we've got to go to them. You should know the names of all of your child's teachers. You should have a relationship with them somehow. You should, if you can, do volunteer work and at least go to the parent-children conference. So the key for me is not that we're going to pull all of our 91% of black children out and put them in private schools. A, we can't afford it. B, there ain't enough private schools. And C, all of those private schools aren't African-centered. But what we can do is make sure that we are heavily involved with our children in school. I am appalled and very disappointed when I ask parents, how many of you look at your home, your child's homework? And I don't care, if, you know, from K through 12, every night of the week. Usually I might get about a third, but it should be 100%. You should see your child's homework every night, even if you don't understand some of it. 
I had somebody today tell me they didn't really understand algebra, but at least she was interested in, you know, understanding it. And so what we've got to do is have an interest in our child's schoolwork. The child has to feel that. The, the teachers have to feel it, and the principals have to feel it. Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, uh, Sarah, one of, the, one of the things that I think and I have uh, suggested uh, to a task force here in Boston that's dealing with issues around uh, the charter schools is that they can have parent-teacher meetings on the Internet. There is free conference call. That's right. So there is no excuse for schools should be required to do a proper level of outreach. That's right. I I do agree with with, with technology. There's lots of ways that you can um, interact with people, Mm -hmm. especially if they have Schedules because you see they do it a lot of times with military people stationed overseas. They they have teleconference where the, where the parents um they pipe them in by That's by these right. video conferences. That's and, right. And if they can do it um for those military people. Why is it that you can't do it for a parent who maybe cannot because of work competing um conflict exactly. that they cannot come into exactly. the school? You if, if you are really and truly want to do that, you can do it. But the whole idea um Janice and Dr. Winbush is that. These people are not interested in teaching black children because black children, we, we are in competition with these other um, children in order for the resources that are on here because we seem to be forgetting that our whole premise in coming over here and being dragged over here to the United States was not so we can become a citizen or we can become incorporated a part of the culture. We were channeled. We were brought here to work. We were not supposed to survive. Now that we are here, we are surviving. That's why you're seeing the majority of us are filling up are in the prison system because the whole idea was never to make us a part of the so-called American fabric. Right. I agree. I agree. Hey, Sarah, thank you for your call. Do you want me to put you on mute? Okay, and and we always miss you when we don't hear from you. Thank you. That was Sarah from Texas calling in. Ray, you see – one of the things is that I think that our people don't get enough opportunity to organize, to agitate, and to resist. And we right. have people who are part of the black leadership who are stuck in the same strategies uh, that were employed in the 1970s, and they have not moved beyond more innovation for for black for opportunities for black empowerment. I think that that's a real big problem. Well, well, don't listening. let me get started, but I, 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 let me say something real quick. I do agree with that 100%. You know, that's why less and less I'm impressed with marches. You know, be, you know like some of our national leaders said, we're going to have a march involving this. The reason why the march has lost its impact is because in the 70s and 60s when we marched, there was usually violence associated with it, and that violence got broadcast, and it it created a base for saying, let's legislate civil rights, nonviolence, if you please. Now marches are more symbolic. Uh, Probably the greatest march that we've had 
in the past 50 years, and, you know, I get is a million-man march, and, of course, you know, Martin Luther King's March on Washington. I went to the more recent one. I'm sorry I wasn't impressed, and I think that we better develop strategies for the 21st century that is appropriate for achieving justice. Absolutely, and I think that we have to, when you say the word justice, Ray, I think people minimize what that is. Yeah, and we, we have do. to spend more time defining it in in our lives. It's well, at the bottom of the. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Let me just say this. You know, it's like in the film. I was asking myself after I saw Twelve Years a Slave, did Solomon Northup achieve justice? You know, and I mean that's a whole nother discussion well, we about how black folk mm-hmm. confuse justice with legal issues. Yes. We certainly uh, want to talk about that. We're going to take a break, and when we come back with Dr. Raymond Wimbush, we're going to be talking about 12 Years a Slave. What did the movie mean for us? What was the message? This is Our Common Ground. We'll be right back. Transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. scoop can make a child smile and that by slowing us down the traffic light can keep us going you know that the lawnmower makes life easier that the blood bank makes life possible but did you know all these ideas came from the minds of african americans support the united negro college fund because a mind is a terrible thing to waste visit uncf.org or call 1-800-332-UNCF brought to you by uncf and the ad council Our Common Ground News Break, Saturday, November 16, 2013. Brought to you by Our Common Ground. A Detroit area man's been arraigned on charges of murder and manslaughter, along with a firearms charge and the shooting death of a woman on the front porch of his home in the early morning hours nearly two weeks ago. 54-year-old Theodore Wafer allegedly shot 19-year-old Renisha McBride in the face in the early hours of November 2nd. McBride reportedly crashed her car and then went looking for help. Wafer said he thought she was trying to break into his house and didn't mean to shoot his weapon. Wayne County Prosecutor Kim Worthy describes the scene just before the shooting. The shot was filed through an um, open door, but a closed and locked screen door. Kim Worthy. Civil rights groups are demanding an investigation into whether the shooting was race-related. The prosecutor's office says it's convinced race is not a factor. Michigan has a self-defense law that allows homeowners to use force during a break-in. Otherwise, a person must show that his or her life was in danger. I'm Vicki Cohill for AURN.com. The White House Report. I'm April Ryan. President Obama makes the announcement on the fix for those Americans who lost their health care insurance after the new implementation phase of the ACA law that went into effect October 1. My pledge to the American people is, is that we're going to solve the problems that are there. We're going to get it right. And the Affordable Care Act is going to work for the American people. 
Americans who have had canceled health care insurance since October 1 will now have a reprieve of a year to stay on the insurance that they like, but will have to find new insurance. Meanwhile, Congressman Bobby Scott of Virginia says the Affordable Care Act did not cause these insurance policies to be dropped. If it's a new policy offered after the Obamacare passed, insurance company knew that it was not grandfathered and knew they couldn't offer it after January 1st, 2014, and they sold it anyway. For these and other stories, visit AURN.com. I'm for Ryan. Annie E. Casey Foundation took a close look at the health, emotional, social skills, and cognitive development of third graders. Patrick McCarthy, Foundation President, says overall, U.S. kids are behind. So for example, two-thirds of America's children are having trouble in either math or reading or science. He says the disparities widen for low-income and minority kids. Poor kids are already behind by 18 months. In fact, by age two, they're as, as much as six months behind, and by age five, as much as two years behind. McCarthy adds the results prove that policymakers and parents must do more to invest in early childhood education. I'm DeSondra Harris. About 150 seniors joined a protest in front of the White House against moves to cut into Social Security and Medicare to balance the federal budget. Dan Adcock of the National Committee to Preserve Social Security and Medicare says the majority of seniors only make $23,000 annually. Right now, there are, you know, about 40% of, of uh, Social Security beneficiaries depend on Social Security for 90% of, of their benefits. And, and amongst communities of color, specifically African Americans, that number is more like 50% of African-Americans depend on Social Security for more than 90% of their benefits. Adcock feels any cuts would be only the first bite of the apple. I mean, for Ryan. Fallout has begun from President Obama's proposal to give insurance companies the option of continuing health plans. They're on the chopping block because of the Affordable Care Act. Two states already rejecting the proposal. The president's move Thursday was in reaction to millions of Americans being booted because the plans didn't live up to the requirement of the new health care law. That, despite the president's claims that if Americans like their insurance policies, they'd be able to keep them. Coupled with the botched rollout of healthcare.gov, the president told reporters Thursday. These are two fumbles on something that, on a big game. Regarding the fix to millions of cancellation notices. Now, this fix won't solve every problem for every person, but it's going to help a lot of people. But state insurance commissioners have to agree, and individual insurers don't have to comply. Reaction from House Speaker John Boehner. Promise after promise from this administration has turned out to be not true. The House GOP plans to present a different proposal today. Meantime, the National Association of Insurance Commissioners said the president's proposal could lead to higher premiums and market disruptions next year and beyond. Kim Lampkins, a... Miami Dolphins owner Stephen Ross says he will meet with Jonathan Martin regarding the hazing and bullying that occurred between Martin and Richie Incognito. And when it comes to the content of Incognito's text to Martin, Ross describes how he felt. I was appalled. I think anybody would be appalled. You know, when you when you first read that uh, uh, text that was reported, you know, uh, I mean, you know, to me, I didn't realize people would talk text or you know speak that way. Ross also says that the Dolphins organization will install a code of conduct that suits the 21st century with a new five-man committee that will provide internal evaluation. The committee includes former NFL head coach Tony Dungy, former NFL head coach Don Shula and Hall of Famer, and Hall of Fame quarterback Dan Marino. David Perkins, AURN.com. Health Watch with Dr. Ian Smith. According to research out of the Harvard School of Public Health, there may be another reason that you don't want to skip your breakfast. 
skipping it may increase your chances of a heart attack. A study of older men found that those who regularly skipped breakfast had a 27% higher risk of a heart attack than those who ate their morning meal. Now, there's no reason why the results wouldn't apply to other people, according to the researchers. Experts aren't certain why this occurs, but here's what they think. People who don't eat breakfast are more likely to be hungrier later in the day, and they tend to eat larger meals. Those meals mean the body must process a larger amount of calories in a shorter amount of time. That can spike your sugar levels in the blood and perhaps lead to clogged arteries. For Health Watch, I'm Dr. Ian Smith. For more about this story and others, just log on to our website at ARN.com and follow me on Twitter at Dr. Ian Smith, without the word doctor. A product of American Urban Radio Network. Common Ground News brought to you from the American Urban News Network. You're listening to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. Back to Our Common Ground. And thank you for being with us here tonight at Our Common Ground. Next week at Our Common Ground coming up, Antoinette Harrell. She is the host of Nurturing Our Roots Television, and she'll be joining us in a conversation about what that show is all about and how you can support it. Uh, Don't forget December 21st, uh, the annual Our Common Ground Kwanzaa Teach-In. Joining us will be Dr. Matthew V. Johnson of Solar Fire, Alpha of the Alpha Show, Blanche, Blanche Williams, the host of the new program premiering on December 30th at TruthWorks Network, and Dr. Wilma Leon, Inside the Issues at XM Sirius Radio, will be joining us and will be helping you get ready for the Kwanzaa season. And we want to thank especially our friend, our brother, Dr. Raymond Wimbush, for joining us once more at Our Common Ground. Ray, you know, one of the things that I always look for, because you love to go to the movies. You go to all the movies. Not <laughs> all, but many. You, <laughs> I always look to see if you went to see it and what you said about it. Give us a, uh, an idea, um, uh, just an overview of your thoughts, your response to the movie Twelve Years a Slave. Well, I mean, very quickly, you know, a lot of people, it always trips me when people say, I'm just tired of movies about slavery. We haven't had that many movies about slavery. Uh we had Roots, which was 40 years ago. We had that idiotic movie, Django, last year. Uh, we have seen slavery depicted in movies like Lincoln, but there really hasn't been that many films about enslavement. Secondly, I like the fact that 12 Years a Slave was written by a black man, Solomon Northrup, the screenplay was written by a black man, and 
the uh, director was a black man. Now, I'm not being sexist. The point is, is that it's rare that you see at what I call an African film being written, directed, and screenplayed by people that are black. Roots had a, a white director. People forget that, David Wolper. The, the films that have had that about enslavement are incredibly weird. The only one that I can even remotely think of like that is Sankofa and Julie Dash's wonderful film, one of my favorite films of all time, Daughters of the Sun. So Absolutely. I just posted it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's an incredible film. So I like the film. Um, I think that it, 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 what it did, it didn't. It wasn't melodramatic, like that. Again, that stupid Django movie last year. It wasn't melodramatic. Usually, the characters portraying that are being portrayed in movies about enslavement are usually very like evil. But there's no nuance to the character. The other thing I loved about this film, it showed the complicity of the white woman in maintaining and holding slavery. So this, this white evil monster that terrorized Patsy in the film, that has never been shown except that small thing in Roots 40 years ago with Kizzy and her relationship with that little white girl. But they showed the horror of the white woman, how she terrorized black people, and particularly black women that she knew were having sex with her husband or I should say being raped by her husband. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I liked the film. I thought it was very good. I thought it was very well done. I think it's, it's a brutal film. One person I know called it uh, slavery porn. I wouldn't agree with that. But I think the film deserves probably the best portrayal of enslavement I've seen since Ruth. Well, it certainly uh, provided... Um, a realistic look. One of the things that struck me about the film was, uh, as you say, the role of white women in this institution of slavery. Right. The the other is the almost pathology of white men it wasn't and their sexuality. Right, I mean, right. just, you know, and for those of you who have not seen it, we're trying not to give away the film. But right. there was something else that struck me, and that is how a system of white terrorism eroded the sense of dignity uh, of the main character when he returned home. Yeah. He was unable to face the shame of right. an experience which was not his fault. So exactly. here we are, once again, full throttle, faced with the notion that we take on guilt and shame for something right. for which we are not responsible. So I, I, that's, that's very well said because him apologizing to his family by saying, I'm sorry, you know, mm-hmm. it, he did, it wasn't his fault. Or, or I'll tell you another scene, DJ, that, you know, slaps this whole thing about shame too. The opening scene practically where the woman 
is, you know, I, 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 I know I'm giving away some of the plot, and this is an adult audience, but the woman is masturbating with Solomon at Northrop at the beginning, mm-hmm. and then she cries because mm-hmm. they have been placed in that situation. They were forced in that situation, mm-hmm. but they were mm-hmm. absorbing white complicity mm-hmm. into themselves and feeling black guilt, and there was no need for that. And see, that's why I think even today, I've heard people in the past couple of weeks say, well, I ain't going to go see 12 Years a Slave. Why? Well, I'm tired of slavery. I'm thinking that their shame of mm-hmm. what that we were enslaved is still the, mm-hmm. the DNA is still with us right now, that we feel mm-hmm. that we are still we somehow responsible for what happened to us three or four hundred years ago, and mm-hmm. we're not. We're not. And 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 the other piece of it was, um, I experienced a the one of my experience at the end of the movie was I was in a state of some of the deepest sorrow yes. that I had ever recalled aloud to myself um i i i i refused to go to the movie with with other people because i didn't want to be distracted and the theater was practically um i I think there were 11 people in the whole theater um Mm. and and i sat way away from possibly anyone but i sat there for 15 minutes after the film was over because I wanted all the people to go so I could flee. And that's what I felt like right. I was doing. I got to my car uh, in that 15 minutes. I was so sorrowful. You know, and I kept saying to myself, where I kept asking myself, how does a people ever, how did we ever survive it? Well, I, I think that not only did you ask that, but I think white people ask that. See, BJ, let's yeah, Sarah, be real. Yeah, Sarah said the, that earlier. Sarah said they didn't expect us to survive it. They did not. White people did not expect us to survive slavery. And even today, I'm talking about in 2013, it is an amazing story of 500 years. Absolutely. By all logic, we should all be dead. By mm-hmm. logic given what occurred to us being snatched from Africa, dropped in South America, the Caribbean, and then the hells of North America, I mean, dropped here. And then not only did we survive, but we prospered. And I'm not measuring our success, by, but we produced a George Washington Carver. We produced an Angela Davis, a Maria Abu-Jamal. You know, and I, I'm going to say it, you know, we produce a Barack Obama. And if I were a white person, I said, what does it take to kill these people? They we <laughs> enslaved them, we beat them, we raped them, we shot them, we burned them. And like Maya Angelou says, still we rise. We still yes. rise. Yes. And, and, yes. And, and we know that we're a powerful people just on that testimony by itself. But we have to convey that greatness to our children and our children's children. And that and that that is one of the ways in which we do 
and we yeah. do uh, find ourselves a way out of where we are today. Yes. That's yes. one of the ways that we do it. Ray Wimbush, it, it has been it 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 has been such a a, a hard six years. Yeah. For us. Uh, yeah, that really, is. really hard. Yeah. Listen, thank you so very much for joining us. You know, I always enjoy this uh 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 discussions with you. You have such great insight. You keep your feet so planted on the ground as my grandmother would say. <laughs> and 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 you keep persevering. You keep you are you are one of the brothers in uh, in the academy in our community that continue to be of real hope, authentic hope. Well, I tried DJ, and let me just, you know, back at you. I mean, you're one of the pioneers of radio broadcasting in this country, of black radio broadcast, and it's, it's how it should be done, and we used, and you remember when it was done the way you're doing it now. And so I want to, you know, extend my gratitude and thanks for you bringing these shows to our people around the world. So, you know, thanks a lot, too, okay? Well, we'll certainly have you back and join us for Kwanzaa this year uh, because people need to understand that we need to live by the Nguza Saba every day. Dr. Raymond Wimbush, thank you so very much. You must, if you have not read Belinda's petition, Should America Pay and the Warrior Method, if you have not read them and studied them. Ray, thanks a lot, and I'll see you on the other side. Okay, BJ. Good night. Okay. I love that brother. I really love that brother from the very beginning. You're listening to Our Common Ground. We're getting ready to get out of here. For all of you who have called in and um, I haven't been able to get to you, I'm sorry. Join us next uh, Saturday, and in our second page, we're just going to have open mic. In our first page, we're going to be talking with Antoinette Africa Harrell. She is the host of Nurturing Our Roots Television. And don't forget about TruthWorks Network. It is a broadcast network sponsored by Our Common Ground Media and Communications, and we'd love to see you on Wednesday night with Dr. Matthew V. Johnson at Soul of Fire, The Alpha Show on Friday. It's just damn talk radio. And coming up Mondays, December 30th premiere, Blanche with an explanation mark with the host, the author of Greatness by Design, Blanche Williams. She is, we are so pleased to have her join us. This is our common ground. So I'm from a stock that pitch cocktail bombs and hand grenades. We pour cayenne pepper around the perimeter of a building to keep the police dogs at bay. I'm the Panther Party in a desire housing project for New Orleans. I'm a nigga turning the gun on the National Guard to take a long, long look. I'm a cook in the kitchen asking the missus to taste the dinner. Take a long, long sip cause death ain't always this good. It's eyes popping out they sockets. It's a lifeless body rocking backwards and forwards. It's a boy's 
fast 40 sometimes in front of the church house. It's a man 43 years old stuffing his penis in a nine-year-old girl's mouth. No, death don't always taste good. Just don't sound like something I want to eat often. I hear them say it was like a train came through the room, left mama so depressed she was unable to move until one day. A few months after the hurricane came, husband and child found the Trinity bloody in bed, his wife, son, a daughter dead, and on the end table there was a letter that read, I couldn't stay here, not for one minute longer, and it made no sense for me to leave here alone, cause who would take care of my babies with their mama gone, I'm telling you, death ain't always good, it'll leave you finning for water and food, it'll riddle up your body in the Audubon ballroom, they'll El Hajj, Malik El Shabazz you, crown you king. Then dethrone you in a Lorraine hotel They'll disfigure your body To where folk can't tell If you Emmett Till or not Tell them mama Keep that casket open Let all the world see It ain't just burning in Mississippi Hell is hot wherever you be From the rooftop to the cell block Step on up to the auction block Been over Touch your toes So show your teeth Live her titties Examine his balls It damn near sound like a hip-hop song But it's slavery at its peak A circus for all the freaks They'll warn you caution when you speak Can't afford the truth to leak But we'll say blessed are the meek And all the ones who make peace And all the ones who are persecuted For the sake of righteousness For we say theirs is the kingdom Earth is their inheritance So no matter how treacherous They'll try to trap us in them trenches They'll dig deeper ditches But all that matters is this Which side will we pick which path will we choose either win or lose cause death don't come in vain not for us to remain enslaved or our spirits to remain in cages it comes so we though we might be courageous to fulfill our obligation to our God and all creation and stand in determination able to look death in the face and say we made it we made it we made it This morning thinking about the old me When I was feeling like Miller Lite and O.E. But now I ride on some consciousness I'm getting bread while I go to my accomplishments Only one like I have a problem with is myself That's probably why my only competition is myself From today to tomorrow the doctor just rock to the same drum The past so I ain't forgot where I came from uh, I got the club right. Who are you? When you don't know when you should have done, but you didn't. When you should have, but you don't. When you can't find, won't ask, can't say what you want. Who are you? When you recognize that you have accepted, tolerated, and accommodated stuff from them or him or her that has diminished yourself. Just who are you? Thank you so much for being with us here at Our Common Ground. Each Saturday, 10 p.m., I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. A special thanks to our chatters in our chat room. Join us on Facebook, Tumblr, Pinterest, and our website at OurCommonGround.com. Twitter, follow at JaniceOCG. Have a great weekend. See you next week and join us on TruthWorks on Wednesdays and Fridays, 10 p.m. 
Transforming Truth to Power, one broadcast at a time. I'm not asking for the truth. I know the truth. I know enough. And so what I'm asking you is, what is your in-game 